You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Hope you guys are doing well. I, I'm doing really good, and I, I owe part of that to the Wingies. I'm probably at the most peace on stage today that I've ever been, and I can show you why. I got my little dog Kona here with me this morning. And this will also keep me from falling off the stage. We're missing all the rest of this stuff, so I needed some additional boundaries. But I'm super grateful to be here this morning. I want to thank our worship team. I thought Tyler did an amazing job with Men Who Dream. We uh, obviously have a, got a lot of guests here with us in town today. Hopefully you feel welcomed by uh, those that may have taken the opportunity to get around and meet you today. And uh, before we get started, I do want to uh, say a prayer for a number of individuals. There is one individual that you may think I was remiss in. I'm not. I will be praying for them at the uh, end of the message. But uh, let's go ahead and bow our heads. Father God, you're an amazing God. And I'm so grateful uh, for the way you work in our lives. Uh, The men and women that you put in my life, my wife, my children, my grandbaby, all my friends, those that helped me... uh, fight on as brian was singing this morning it's so many times i think within our christian walk we can be distracted by satan we can listen to his whisperings in our ears and feel like we can't do this we shouldn't do this that god doesn't want us that god doesn't love us and all of those are absolute lies but i want to pray for marina mills and her recovery that it's just so awesome hearing from brian she's already home she's doing better uh betty collins who's sick not here with us today uh, Betty, shout out to you in prayer here this morning, and for Wanda Steberg as well. Father, I help her as she continues through her cancer treatment, that she'll make an incredible recovery there as well. But Father, you're amazing. There may be other people that I've missed this morning. Father, you know who they are. You watch out for them. You take care of them. You guide them, guard them, and more than anything, for those that have made Jesus Christ Lord of their lives, you see them the same way you see your son, which is perfect, despite of our weaknesses, and all of our shortcomings. Father, I love you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you uh, know, we're continuing in our uh, series, Ordinary Heroes. We've had the opportunity to look at a number of them so far. Some you may have been familiar with, some maybe not so much. Uh, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, Brian kicked us off with Enoch. Uh, I had the opportunity to do Gideon, and uh, the Peckmans last week did Esther. And with that, each of them individuals that were different, but there were some things that were key with all of them, and that was the relationships. Enoch, his relationship with God. Gideon, being willing to listen to God and going in the strength that he had. With Esther, again, having individuals in her life that gave her a degree of guidance and direction and input, and this willingness to be totally surrendered to do the right thing for God and God's people. John Mark's a little different. I think most of you know I had the opportunity to Psalm 22 a number of uh, weeks back, months back. Wasn't super fired up about being that that was the last sermon left and I ended up with it. So I decided I was just going to jump into the fray with these. Uh, somebody needed to get in and I'd already decided on the one I was doing. I decided to pick that up as well. But John Mark, I really don't know a whole lot about. So I figured, you know what, this is a way to help deepen my own conviction and perspective and hopefully that'll help today with you. 
Um, I do want to start off, though, and I think a lot of you may be able to, re to kind of relate to this when it comes to time. And when it comes to time, for Maddie's sake, I'm going to try and keep this within the 40 minutes I've been allocated. She kind of leaned over and brought that to my attention. I don't want her struggling here this morning. But when I was a teen, I was a swimmer. I, no, I didn't play football. Most of you know the reasons for that. But there was a guy on my mixed medley team, Rick, who was this phenomenal swimmer. I mean, he was huge. He was buff. Looked like a hang glider with the, the laps that he had from doing uh, butterfly. And he could do butterfly. He could just literally swim circles around me, butterfly backstroke and freestyle. Uh, I had one saving grace, which was breaststroke. I did have the high school record in the 50-yard uh, uh, and the 100-yard uh, swim. And because of that, I was a part of the medley. And our, when it comes to medley, when you have a team, don't you pretty much need everybody to engage? Well, in this particular situation, Rick was just a cut-up. I mean, he was the, you know, the, the, the clown there in the group. Um, when it came to swimming, again, he could swim circles around me, but wouldn't take any of the direction from the coach, wouldn't listen to any of the strategies that were put out there when it came to the situation with the team. And ultimately, during swim practice, it really used to tick me off because we're having to swim, by and large, 75% of what we're swimming are strokes that I literally almost drowned in. And yet, this guy who was amazing at it would literally swim halfway into the middle of the pool, turn around, and go back. And it was, it was kind of frustrating. I guess I'd say I was a little aggravated about it. We had this invitational meet that was huge. There were somewhere in the realm of 54 teams from throughout Central and Southern California that came together. Don't laugh. My wife even edited one word out of it in that it's the West Covina Water Otters. And her thing, she scratched out water and it's like, if they're an otter, aren't they in water? That was the team name. It was the West Covina Water Otters. And then we had, uh, our, our nemesis was the Elmani El Aquatics, which have been a phenomenal team for years. Um, so we're in this meet. We're tied. This little podunk water otter team is tied with the Elmani Aquatics. And the final match was our medley, which was worth 40 points, which would have definitively given us the win. Well, we, we start out and... You know, freestyle goes great, backstroke goes great, and then it's Rick's turn with the uh, butterfly, and he absolute, absolutely choked in the realm of swimming, and then he was off by two and a half seconds. So when it came time to play catch-up, I wasn't the anchor, this was in the mix of it, but when it came time to play catch-up for the guy that swam after him, there was no way he could close that gap. So we ended up losing to the Almonte Aquatics, coming in second place, but because of the, the number of points that were available for the first place winner, which ended up being another team, we got bumped into third place. It was a team effort. We're supposed to be unified. We're supposed to be there for each other. We're supposed to support one another. But we came in third place. Now, any of you relate to this? Have you ever been in a situation where someone let you down? Maybe someone failed you? I know I can identify it, I would imagine most of us here can. And the, the issue here with this is none of us are perfect. You know, it can seem sometimes in our Christian walk that we just can't seem to do anything right. We blow it. We sin. We neglect prayer. We neglect God's Word, the Bible, the Holy Spirit's direction, and the relationships that we've been blessed with in this church. We hurt others intentionally or by accident. But what then? Where do you go with that? How do you, how do you move forward? How do you get back on your feet? How do you become a productive member of the team, the family again? 
Well, today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to look at several texts. It's more of a biography, a sketch of a biblical figure who let the team down. And I believe through John Mark's life, there's a lot that we can take away today and learn from. Uh, for those of you that were my party last night, if you will engage with me and open your South Bay app. It's kind of an inside thing, which may not be an inside thing much longer, but are you guys engaged? Okay, amen. And I, I do want to say for those of you, I went back and I hit Command F and I you know, kind of went through the whole thing. I didn't have engage anywhere in there, so that was definitively for you. But anyway, title of the message today, find my flipper here, huh? <laughs> is John Mark, the uh, tale of a former quitter. Let's start out, if we would, with Acts 12, verse 11. It says, then Peter came to himself and he said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything else the Jewish people were anticipating. When they had... When this had dawned on him, now keep in mind, this is after he'd been prayed for, prison doors were open, he was freed, and verse 12 says, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. I want you to notice a couple things in this passage here. Now, first and foremost, this is the first mention of John Mark by name in the Bible. His given name is John, which means the grace of God. And like a lot of early Christians, he has a second name, which is how we know him today, which is Mark. Second, it's pretty significant. Mary, Mark's mother, is mentioned here. Not her husband. It may have been her husband was, she was a widow. He may have died. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of detail there. But we do have detail in that Mary had a relatively big house for that point in time, and then most of those homes were a main room and a room, you know, basically able to house four to six people, but hers was much larger than that. Most houses, again, were, were a lot smaller. With this, we see some other things that are going to come to pass as we move further along in this this morning. They had a servant as well. Mark was more than likely to have been brought up in a relatively wealthy family. And we also see that John Mark's family is deeply involved in the church. Now, after Peter was miraculously released from prison, where did he go? Mary's house. He must have known that Christians would be meeting there at Mary's house, which suggests that this was a regular meeting place for those men and women. Now, there's some early church traditions that say Mary's house was the place of the Last Supper. And that's not something we can know for sure. It's in the anti-Nicene writings. A lot of commentaries claim that. But obviously, for that to take place, it had to have certainly been big enough. And here's what we've learned about Mark so far. He's Jewish. He was born John. He picked up another name, a Latin name, Mark. His father's probably dead. Mother's probably a wealthy woman with a big house and at least one servant. And Mark's family is Christian and involved in the Jerusalem church. Mary's not the only relative of John Mark. We see this as we move forward in Colossians 4. It tells us that Barnabas is actually John Mark's cousin. Barnabas and Saul, that's Paul, had come down from Antioch to visit Jerusalem with the money that they had collected to help, help the church there, which was in the midst of a famine. So with that, let's move on to Acts 12, verse 25. Turn with me, scroll with me, whatever it is that you're doing to get to the next passage there. Acts 12, verse 25. 
says, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So the mission was finished. They're going home to Antioch. They pick up Mark and they bring him with them. And this was more than likely Barnabas's idea, who is John Mark's cousin. So we're going to take a look at two evangelists, Barnabas and Paul, who had just come off their first missionary journey together. Barnabas and Paul had been a team. And it had been Barnabas who had first taken the young Saul under his wing. Think about this. Saul was persecuting the church. He was calling down death warrants on the Christians at the time. And Paul changes his, or Saul changes his name to Paul. Barnabas gets a push from the Holy Spirit to engage this guy and start introducing him around. So it's interesting. We don't hear this a lot, but Barnabas was Paul's mentor. Barnabas was the one that helped introduce Paul to the rest of the church. I mean, you know, if we're, we're getting into maturity and spirituality and things of that nature, Barnabas definitely was in a role where he was helping Paul learn the ropes. So after fasting and praying, they laid their hands, oh, Acts 13 verse, uh, let's see, where do we go here? Yeah, Acts 13 verse 1. So again, when Paul was sent home to Tarsus for a number of years, it was Barnabas who had come and gotten him and brought him to Antioch. With that, Barnabas was obviously the lead evangelist in this situation. Acts 13 verse 1. It says, now there were in a church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, whoops, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. When they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John Mark to assist them. Mark comes with them from Antioch. There in Paul and Barnabas are sent on a mission trip to Cyprus. They bring Mark with them as their assistant. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and come to Perga in Pamphylia. John Mark left them and he returned to Jerusalem. So they leave Cyprus and sail north, landing in what is now Turkey, and for some reason, John Mark leaves. He goes home to Jerusalem. Why did he leave? Turkey's a pretty mountainous area. It may have been a matter of just looking what was ahead of him in light of the kind of cush mission that he went out on the first time. I mean, imagine walking hundreds of miles through mountainous terrain. I know I'm not a fan. It may have been the fact that they, along the route there were, there were robbers, there were wild animals. Again, things that, you know, for some of the hunters in the group, wild animals, man, that's kind of cool, man. Give me a crossbow, give me my bow, give me a gun, I'm good to go. Um, John Mark obviously wasn't walking around with something like that at that point. It may have been the fact that this was one of the places that Paul had actually received his lashings, the 40 less one for 39 lashes. And John Mark may have decided, you know what, I ain't signing up for this. This is not something I want to be a part of. So with that, just thinking through, for us personally, are there ever times as Christians you're faced with something that can be a little bit intimidating? Let's continue in Acts 15. In Acts 15, verse 36, it says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas went to take John, also called Mark with them. 
for Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Now, how can this take place? Aren't these guys brothers in Christ? Aren't they unified through the blood of Christ? What did John Mark do? He deserted them. And what did that lead to? It led to this incredible disagreement between them. These brothers that had been united, that had been on these mission trips together, that were having this incredible impact. It says, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers, by the grace of the Lord, who went to Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, it's kind of interesting, as a side note, they were going out, Paul and Barnabas, they were bringing John Mark, he's kind of an assistant, maybe kept track of what was going on, did some scribe work. But even when the breakup, they still go out in twos, which I think really demonstrates for us how significant it is to have someone else in our lives. Paul refers to Mark as a deserter, one who flees from battle. When in, and when that ensued, that became this incredibly severe breach over Mark that the once inseparable companions split over. And they went on separate trips. Paul felt so strongly that Mark should not come on the mission, he separated from his mentor, his evangelist, Barnabas. And Barnabas, for his part, just as stubbornly, thought Mark should come. So what did he do? He took him. And he went back to Cyprus. I think there's a number of lessons that we can learn from this, and we'll, we'll get to those in just a minute here. But for now, I want you to notice the tone here. Mark had let them down. Mark wasn't reliable. Mark had failed them. And it led to such a strong disagreement, the brothers that had been unified by Christ were now going in two different directions. And after leaving with Barnabas in Acts 15.39, it's silent about John Mark for over a decade. Mark disappeared from church history for over a decade. Turn with me to Colossians 4, verse 10. Colossians 4, verse 10 says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, they are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. This is a decade later. Paul's writing to the Colossians from Rome. He's in prison. He's awaiting trial. Mark is with him. What happened? Well, look what Paul says about him first. He specifically instructs the Colossians to welcome Mark if he visits. It's kind of interesting that when you look back at the journeys, that Colossae is not that far away from Perga, which Mark, where, that's the place that Mark bailed when he first left Barnabas and Paul. Second, Paul says about the three Jews he just mentioned, including Mark, that now John Mark is a comfort to Paul. What a change. Once Mark had disappointed Paul, now he comforts him. Once he had failed Paul, now he's building him up. Once he called division and grief in Paul's life, now he's held up as a source of friendship and companionship. And in the book of Philemon, Paul calls him a fellow worker, a fellow slave of the master. You know, later we see in 2 Timothy 4, verse 9, 
Paul says, do your best to come quickly to me. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Someone else, very valued to Paul, walking away. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in the ministry. You know, for me, I think this is one of the most poignant moments in the whole New Testament when Paul, who's deserted yet again, and I'm sure the grief and the disappointment that was associated with that, yet again, Paul asked Timothy to bring none other than Mark back to Rome. Demas abandoned the mission just like Mark, yet Paul wants Mark by his side again. And you know, this is really cool because Paul's not the only one to think so highly of John Mark. In 1 Peter 5, verse 13, Peter refers to John Mark as his son. Peter loved him. What a turnaround. A son in the faith, a comfort, a helper, a scribe, a church builder. And this is far from the Mark that we saw in Acts 13. What can we look from the account of Mark's life? What can we learn here? The lesson here is we need to allow ourselves to be influenced by godly people. Let me say that again. Every single one of us as disciples of Jesus Christ need to allow ourselves to be inspired, directed, influenced by godly people. Teens, you know, it's kind of like the, the euphemism about fishing. You know, the, the worst day fishing is better than the best day working. Teens, the best day or the worst day in your household with your Christian parents is better than the best day anywhere else. They may not be perfect, and this may come as a huge shock to you. I don't think any of you are. We've got to understand that. None of us are perfect. We all have our shortcomings. We all have our issues. We all have our flaws. But isn't being a part of God's kingdom the only place to be? John Mark allowed himself to be influenced by godly people. Proverbs says many advisors will do what? A grant of success. Don't we want to get to heaven? Yeah. Spiritual advisors will do just that. They will help you get to heaven. John Mark's mother, Mary, wealthy, generous woman, practices hospitality with Jesus and his followers at the risk of losing her wealth and her comfort, at the risk of being imprisoned herself. She hosts Christian meetings in her home. Mary put it all, everything, on the line for the church. Mark had a courageous and faithful mother. We need to allow courageous and faithful people to influence us, amen? amen. Next we have Barnabas. Most of us know his name means son of encouragement. What a fitting name. It was Barnabas who took Paul, while everybody else was afraid of even getting anywhere near the guy, under his wing, after his conversion. We know that Barnabas introduced Paul to the early church and the apostles when everyone else was still afraid of him. It was Barnabas who encouraged and mentored Paul. Barnabas fought to give Mark a second chance after Mark screwed up. He was willing to, this is pretty wild here. 
he felt so strongly about his conviction to give John Mark a second chance, he jeopardized the relationship with, I'm sure, at that time was his best friend, Paul. He was willing to separate from Paul to give Mark a second chance. Barnabas didn't give up on him. He encouraged Mark, gave him another opportunity. And I don't know about you, sometimes isn't that what we all need? Just another shot? Just another opportunity? God is the God of second chances. And sometimes that's all we need. We all mess up. We all let people down. We all fall short. We all fall short of the glory of God in many ways. But Barnabas right here, in my opinion, is kind of an extrapolation of Jesus. Barnabas is a picture of grace. God is the God of second chances, and he uses people like Barnabas to show us that restoration is possible. We need people like Barnabas who stick with us when we screw up and who offer grace and encouragement. And hopefully this is something that when it comes to all four of the characteristics we're going to be looking at, we can incorporate all those into our lives for each other. Amen? Third, there's Paul. Paul's a little bit different guy. He's a former Pharisee. He's very precise, logical, exact. He's a very demanding person. Mark let him down. The mission's hard. We can't afford risk. He feared what would happen to the mission if John Mark came along again. So he had to choose between a call to the mission and the chance to set Mark straight, and he chose the former. Paul set a high standard for those who were with him. He didn't lower it. He didn't bend it. He didn't adjust it to make it easier for Mark. And you know, on the forefront, that may seem a little harsh, Yet Mark needed exactly that. Mark needed to learn the hard way that Christian service and the Christian life is not for the faint of heart or for the weak of character. Christ calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And that's the picture that we have, this picture of suffering and death. If you think the Christian life is meant to be comfortable and safe in this life, you've misunderstood the gospel. Christians have to be prepared to give up everything, even their lives, for Christ. Mark didn't understand that at first, but with Paul's refusal to bend the standards for Mark, based on Mark's earlier behavior, which demonstrated a poor understanding of the cost of discipleship, this made Mark re-examine his priorities. We all need men and women like Paul in our lives, men and women who will speak the truth in love to us. Amen? And finally, we have the Apostle Peter. Here's a guy who accompanied his mentor Jesus on a teaching mission, and then what happened? When the going got tough, what did Peter do? Peter bailed. Sound familiar? Peter had gone so far as to deny he even knew Jesus Christ. How must Peter have felt after the resurrection, standing there before Jesus on the seashore, wondering, I wonder if Jesus will ever trust me again. I blew it. I let him down. Wonder if he'd ever be any use to God again, to Jesus again. And this is what I love about all the situations in our lives. You know, and Gloria has said this on many occasions. Don't waste your sin. Don't waste your pain. I think that's exactly what's going on right here with Peter. He saw Mark that day, and in that man, he saw himself 
20 years earlier. Peter did the same thing with Mark that Jesus did with Peter that day. On that seashore, he invited the young man over and asked him to help feed his sheep. See, the early church tells us that Mark became Peter's interpreter. He recorded and he arranged Peter's teachings and sermons for others. I, I'm starting to think that with some of the stuff that I read, Peter may have been a little ADD. You know, you kind of see how quickly he responds to things without really thinking. And um, just even from a standpoint of John Mark having to get in, and, you know, it's kind of like Jackie editing my sermon, sermons. And that I, I'm not always the, you know, there's like, I'm going all kinds of directions. She kind of helps funnel it into a silo. You guys need to be grateful for my wife. But somewhere along the way, Peter and Mark wound up in Rome together, and they were both there strengthening the church. I got 13 minutes left, Maddie. This was hard work. This was very dangerous work during Peter's last years, and it would eventually cost both Paul and Peter their lives. But this time, Mark didn't run. Now, if you want, it, want evidence as to how complete Mark's turnaround was, go to the book of Mark. He wrote it. Mark took from what he learned from his mother, his cousin Barnabas, from Paul, Peters, and others, and he wrote what is believed to be the first ever gospel of Jesus Christ. It was so respected that many believe that Matthew and Luke referenced it interdependently when writing their own accounts of the gospel. Every one of us here who are learning to follow Christ, every one of us, if you've chosen... Christ, if you made Jesus Lord of your life, you're on a mission sent by God to make disciples for Christ. And you know, again, we all make mistakes. Every one of us has, or will, or will drop the ball in some kind of a crisis. But I'm sure we can all probably think of a time when someone trusted us, when someone was counting on us to get something done or to be there, and you let them down. We just blew it. Maybe it isn't public like the situation with John Mark. Maybe it's just between you and God. Maybe you've sinned. Maybe you feel like there is absolutely no way God will accept you now or forgive you now. You may feel like you don't matter. You may feel like, why bother? So where do we go from here? How do we go from that point where we failed to recovery, to restoration, to victory. It's growth and holiness, getting better and stronger over time. See, God doesn't lower the bar. He expects and he demands perfection. And you and I are flawed, and guess what? That is okay. The reality is, most of us are broken to some degree or another. We are not perfect people, but Jesus Christ, our Savior, is. Hebrews 12, verse 1. You know, we went through Hebrews 11. That's where these individuals came from. They were part of the series that we're doing here. Is they're all part of the roll call of the faithful. And I think one of the things that we've been able to take a look at and come to the determination of is none of them were perfect. Gideon had his issues. David had his issues. Many of them, probably 70, 80% of them, majorly screwed up at some point in time in their life. But they loved God enough 
that the Holy Spirit decided to walk through, even include a prostitute in the mix, when it comes to God's perspective on us and the impact that we can have for God. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what cloud? The cloud that we saw in Hebrews 11, the list of ordinary heroes. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that's, that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Number one, we need to remember we are not a perfect people, but Jesus Christ is. Jesus is our perfection. God looks at us who are saved, who believe in Jesus, who've been baptized for forgiveness of sins and have chosen him as our Savior. He sees the perfection of Jesus Christ in us, not our sins. In daily life, we have the Spirit who constantly is pushing us forward, ever closer to perfection. Listen, the reason you may feel bad from time to time is because you're supposed to. When we sin, what does the Spirit do? It convicts us. The issue is what do we do after we're convicted by it? And it convicts us not to send us to hell, not to punish us, but so that we'll know what needs to change. And so we're motivated to deal with it, to wrestle with it, with ourselves and with God. God wants us to move on, stand up, and try again. As you can see on the screen here, Jesus is not here to make us feel better. He's here to make us better. Jesus is not here to make us feel better. He's here to make us better. And then secondly, God doesn't want us to do it alone. God has given us this amazing body of believers to walk beside us, his church, his people, our fellow, fellow brothers and sisters. Guys, look around. What a body of believers. Different people who can help in different ways. A faith family. There are Christians like Mary here who are generous and kind, who open up their homes and make you a part of the family. There are many here who come to mind for me whose faith is amazing, it's firm, and they're great examples to others whose courage inspires us to sacrifice for Christ. There are Christians like Barnabas, sons and daughters of encouragement, who will lift you up in the midst of pain, who will help you begin putting the pieces back together again, who will work to strengthen those weaknesses. For me, there's a number of gentlemen that come to mind. Brian Hood, Sean Payne, Frank Aquilina, our shepherds, our elders, our deacons. I appreciate those men that are in my life. There are Christians like Paul, seeing things as black and white, who will let you know what God's expectations are, who love God and you and us and me too much to let you get away with thinking that sin's not serious. Someone that will give you that loving kick in the pants and ask you, what the heck are you thinking? And I've heard that way more times than I even want to begin to count. There are Christians like Peter who have been there, who have let others down, who can put her arm around you and say, yeah, you know, me too. And it will turn your eyes back to Jesus Christ and tell you, look at the cross. You know what that means? 
It means it doesn't depend on you. It means that God loves you so much that there's grace. No matter how far you've fallen, you're not out of God's reach. It means Jesus came to lift you up and make you better than that. He makes you better than the sum of your parts, better than the sum of your failures. You know, for me, there's a couple guys that came to mind when I was not doing real well that gave me a second chance. And that was Peter Garcia and Bruce Williams. So when we hear this message from the story of Mark, if you've screwed up, if you sinned, if you feel bad for something you've done, don't stop there. You don't have to stay there. God has given you the opportunity to get back on your feet again. He's given the opportunity to become better, to become more like him, to become more like his son, Jesus. And he's given us this incredible community of believers. And in our midst, guys, we've got all of them. We've got the Marys, we've got the Barnabases, we've got the Peters, and yes, there's the Pauls. We need them. We all do. He's given the Holy Spirit to reside in us and guide us, as well as those brothers and sisters that are in our lives. So what I'm asking you to do today is to really think this through. If you've got hidden sin in your life, call it out. Confess the sin and ask for forgiveness. And ask for the strength to do better. And here's the thing. Don't try to restore yourself. Don't try to restore yourself. Self-help doesn't work. Because it depends on the same person that screwed it up in the first place. Right? God's our helper and our healer. And if you need help, don't leave here today without finding it. There's a whole room of people right here who can work with you and on you and for you. Don't give in to fear. Don't give in to pride. Come to myself or someone else after the service. Maybe it's the individual that brought you. And let's talk after service. God's purpose is to restore us, to make us like Christ. If you want to be like Christ, the reality of that is Jesus will make it happen. For us and for Mark, the end is so much better than the beginning. Mark grew to become useful to the apostles Paul and Peter. He even became useful to us today with his writings in the Gospel of Mark, which a lot of us rely on very heavily. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8, and this is where we're going to close. I'm coming in under the wire, Maddie. It says, the ending of the thing is better than its beginning. See, success is measured by how we finish, not by how we start. Early church history tells us amazing things about John Mark the quitter, and that he went on to become John Mark the evangelist. In the early writings of the anti-Nicene fathers, it refers to him as being the evangelist that led Alexandria. They, they compared the writer, the historian that wrote about it, compared Alexandria to Jerusalem because of the love of the people and how clear it was who the Christians were and were not. In the end, the story of division over John Mark is one of encouragement. How failure can be turned to success. How nothing should keep us from trying to serve the Lord. Don't allow your past failures in the past to keep you from serving the Lord and his church today in the present. We have this great cloud of witnesses that can attest to the fact that the end is much greater than the beginning. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.